All right, guys, we have the honor of having Jonathan Garland do our message today. Um, I've been really enjoying getting to know Jonathan from um, our campus meetings and also at the ECHO conference. Um, I'd like to pray for you and we can get into the message. Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for Jonathan. I pray that you will just give him the words to say today. I pray that um, what he preaches will be preaching your truth and that um, it will reach into our hearts today, Father. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Dylan. How you guys doing? Hanging in there? You ready for winter time? It's upon us. Here we go. Here we are. I was uh, telling somebody that I actually, um, I'm super ready for it. Last night, we finished setting up our Christmas lights. I know. Um, and, uh, and of course, in Palmer, um, there's already a lot of light out there, but uh, my wife loves to have light outside. I love to have light inside. I feel like it's a Christian thing to do, you know, be the light of the world. We kind of live on a hill. It's just something that we are uh, looking forward to every single year. Anyway, I don't know where that leaves you guys, but that's where I'm at. So um, anyway, hopefully you're ready. Hopefully you got your wood split and all those good things. But I have the honor of being here this morning. Um, you know, your, your senior pastor is, uh, is still recovering from his soldier, not his soldier surgery, his shoulder surgery. There it is, shoulder surgery. And so um, we plan, we anticipated me coming up here some time ago, but um, I, just have to, I just have to say a quick note. Um, we're going to be stepping further into Proverbs today. And so if you're just joining in, um, that's where we'll be. But uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about children and family. And uh, when it comes to children and family, I just have to say that uh, Cody and Sophie, right now, um, they are just really good examples and pursuing Jesus in that endeavor. And what I'm going to discuss this morning isn't the whole, it's a part. You know, we, we only have so much time on a Sunday morning. Um, we're, we hit topics and then we move on quickly. But, uh, but, but if you want the whole, they're an incredible example of the whole, and uh, and so what a great thing that that um, they're here and they get to be that illustration of some of the things that I'm going to be talking about this morning, and they have good coffee in Talkeetna as well. So thanks for all of that. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, just enter into a word of prayer, and then we'll get right into it. You guys ready? All right, here we go. Lord, you're the God of heaven and earth. Your rule, your reign is supreme. We don't see everything on this earth as though it were under your rule, but we know ultimately you are leading all of earth to its ultimate destination. So we can see the mountains tremble and we can see the earth shake, but Lord, we are not shaken. We are immovable, steadfast, and we always are abounding in your work because we recognize it as a part of your plan to move history forward. Help us to be on the right side of history in that sense. Help us to get onto your frequency and to do so now, this morning. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen. I'm gonna do something a little bit differently. I'm actually gonna control the slides. Cody doesn't even know this, but um, his team and I figured it out this morning. Uh, I'm just saying that by faith on the front end. Usually you say it afterwards after it's successful. I'm hoping, I'm hoping this is successful. If it's not successful, it is my fault, Okay. Um, I take full responsibility, but we're in this series called Asking for a Friend, Wise Answers to Tough Questions, and the reason is because all of us have tough 
questions that we want answered, and there are these moments when we're afraid to ask. We don't know what people are going to think or how they're going to perceive us, and so we have this little thing that we do in our culture, in our society. We say, hey, I'm asking for a friend. I'm asking for a friend. And so we launched last week. Again, this is in Proverbs. It's a six-week series. It's a, it's, it's a lot in the Proverbs, and we're just carving out six spaces. So look at it that way. But today, I want to take us into um, children and parenting. Children and parenting. Uh, the truth of the matter is, children and parenting is an important conversation because none of us would be here if somebody didn't have the conversation. Like we're all impacted by this subject in some way, shape, or form. Is that right? Um, and it's a subject that when it comes to our society currently, culturally, there's all kinds of ideas, all kinds of new, innovative ideas. And, uh, and so when it comes to children and parenting, I want to kind of open with an image. And it's the image of, well, when I think of it, it's the image of my son being born. Seth, uh, as you know, if you've been following my story, um, was born 18 plus years ago. He's now a student at Liberty University down in Virginia. But I remember the day Seth was born. And if you've ever been there as a father, you remember those moments. You remember those snapshots. And, and I remember the moment for a number of reasons. One, my wife was like perfect as a mother. I don't know how many headaches she had and other aches and pains she had. She didn't take a single painkiller, like that kind of a mother. And, and you would think God would reward her with this like perfectly, you know, flawless transition to motherhood, you know, with a, a little perfect little child. The reality was is that she experienced 33 hours of hard labor. Now, if you know anything about labor, there's like labor and then there's hard labor. 33 hours of hard labor. There was a moment where she looked at me like, I think I'm going to die. And I remember the relief that came, even though doctors were flooding the room and I almost actually lost almost both of them. I remember the relief that it was when Seth was finally born. And just the reality of knowing this was a healthy baby boy. And it was in that moment that something impressed itself on me. It was in that moment we realized as a couple, as we stared at each other and stared at our newborn, that God was up to something. That, that we had done something truly significant together. That our love had actually created something, but it was more than that. It was that God was actually involved with something in our lives. And that what could have taken place, or what did take place, could not have taken place apart from him being with us. God was with us in this adventure. And it was filled with all kinds of potential. All kinds of hopes and all kinds of dreams just flooded our hearts in that moment. And it was as if that 33 hours of hard labor just sort of vanished. And there we were, ready for the future, on the precipice of great hope and expectation. And then we did what every parent throughout history has done. We took our baby from the hospital or from wherever the baby was born and all of the height of expectation, and we took Seth home. And we experienced a completely different emotion when we got home. Away from the safety of the hospital, away from the reach of friends and families, everybody left, and there we were, left alone with this little infant child. We experienced what every parent has experienced ever, fear. We experienced that moment of going, what if we feed it too much? What if we don't feed it enough? 
What if we roll over on it in the middle of the night? There's like a Bible story about that. And all of this other emotion began to overwhelm. And the reality is, is that that's the way parenting can be. It can be filled with exhilaration and it can also be rather overwhelming. It reminds me of sailing. You ever been sailing? I grew up next to Shasta Lake, Redding, California, and I was 20 minutes away from epic skiing. And so we had a ski boat. A motorboat is fantastic. You have at least the, 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 the semblance of absolute control. Like you can, you can determine, once you get familiar with the lake and water and how your boat operates, you can determine where you're going to be and when you're going to be there. Uh, you, can de- you can turn that thing on a dime. Uh, you, can, you can apply the right amount of power, and you know exactly where to push that throttle down. Sailing is the opposite experience. I had an opportunity to go sailing with uh, my brother's older friend, and uh, his dad had gotten a sailboat. And so um, we just learned him, but we went out on Whiskey Town Lake. This is, again, Northern California. And uh, this was like the, the sailboat mecca of North State. And so we went out there, and everything started out just fine. Uh, you know, there's a little putzer motor, and it kind of got us out into the channel where all the other big boys were playing, and the sails were up, and just, you know, sailboats as far as the eye could see, and everything started out okay, and then all of a sudden, this afternoon breeze kicked up, and I will never forget the moment where I realized that not only would this be my first sailing adventure, but it was bound to be my last. I hated it. Talk about a feeling of out of control. I get that there are literally songs, poetry written about being on the open ocean in a sailboat. I felt no such allure. I mean, we dipped that sail into the water. We were sideways. We were all over the map and people are yelling at each other and we didn't know what we were doing. And then I looked around and realized that we're like, we were the only boat left out there. Everybody else was smart enough to take their sails down and get off the lake, but not us. That's like parenting, isn't it? Like, it can be a lonely adventure. It's an adventure filled with hope and expectation and totally exhilarating. Great excitement, but at the end of the day, it can also be rather overwhelming. And when it gets overwhelming, we go searching. We as parents go searching. And we go searching in lots of conspicuous and inconspicuous places. But we go to places like culture. Culture informs us a lot currently in the West. Like, so what is the Joneses? How are they raising their children? Maybe that's how we should raise our children. We go to books and resources. There's all kinds of resources in the self-help section and otherwise parenting sections of libraries to help you and to inform you about how to answer life's tough questions when it comes to how to parent. It's interesting, it's ironic that when the baby comes home from the hospital, there is no book. It's like God just entrusted us with the most significant thing on earth and didn't write a book about it. We're going to find a few things that God has to say this morning, okay? But, but we, we are really, really smart individuals. So we have written gobs and gobs and gobs of books. And we sell them to people and we claim to be the experts that sometimes we aren't. We also talk to family members. We take the traditional route. When you're searching, there's nothing better than to go to your mom and your dad, your grandparents, and say, how did you do it? What was it like when? Those can be significant 
experiences. And we can transfer information generationally, and those are good things for us to be able to do. But we end up in this situation, which I call an esoteric hodgepodge of parenting skills, where essentially we pick and choose what it is that's going to comprise our style, our interaction with our children. But we lack anything durable. And it's led in our culture, in our society, to a general sense of cynicism towards parenting. In the absence of any consistent line, a rudder to steer us in the right direction, we often ended up in a place where we, rather than get excited about the potential, we end up looking at it with the lens of cynicism and going, is it really worth it? In fact, I'm not actually, I'm not actually alone in this idea. Listen to this Pew Research. This is from November 19th, 2021. It says, when it comes to 18 to 49-year-old parents, so people in my category, who've had a family, right? They've, they've had some kids and they stopped having kids. What is their perception about family? So they've done some things. What do they think? When it comes to 18 to 49-year-old parents who say they're unlikely to have more children in the future, a majority, 63%, say they're not going to have kids. And this is interesting because they just don't want to. How does it make you feel as a kid? With parents in that age bracket. They just don't want to. Uh, It's interesting because if you read the research around this, they don't want to because they've grown cynical over time. They feel like family actually robbed them of something rather than contributed to their life. I mean, when Shannon and I had that little baby boy experience, we felt like we were really living But for many, apparently, that experience fades quickly. And what we've actually passed on to the next generation in our culture, in our society, Gen Z as they're known, what we've actually passed on is a very negative view of parenting itself. We're just not sure we trust it. And we have all kinds of reasons why we don't trust it. But frankly, it's too difficult. Far from really living, we're not sure it's living at all. Perhaps it's just robbing us. So what I want to do is I want to present an alternative from the Proverbs. So a Proverbs is where we're at. Again, it's not going to tell us everything that parenting and child rearing is all about, but it's going to tell us something, and it has an agenda. Whenever we get into the book, realize that book has an agenda. It has a perspective. It has something we need to understand. We need to understand something about the book. And so one of the first things we need to understand about the book of Proverbs is that it was written in principles, not promises. In other words, it's generally true that a brother is born for adversity. That's in the Proverbs. But we've all had a brother that wasn't there for us in the middle of adversity. But generally speaking, a brother was born for adversity. Sounds like a promise, but it's not. It's a principle. It's one perspective on life. It's the normal perspective. It's generally true, but not always true. And as a result, as a result, we need to understand that it's about the art of skillful living. In other words, the Proverbs are intended not to create perfection in our life, but to allow us to have the skills necessary for life so we can live successfully in the midst of a world that is not perfect. 
that doesn't operate like heaven yet. So if you're looking for that book that gives direction in a world that is not perfect, where things are still broken, Proverbs is uniquely designed to do just that. And quite frankly, all wisdom literature and scripture is designed to do just that. So we're not looking for perfection. What we're looking for is norms. What are the principles, the functioning principles? It's as if God set certain laws in motion and the wise know how those laws operate in their daily lives. And they tap into those things. And as a result, we can benefit and we can benefit others. So principles, not promises, and it's the art of skillful living. And when it comes to parenting and children, that's what we're after, isn't it? We want to know. We want to know how we're supposed to come at this package that we have been given called parenting and child rearing. Now, there's a couple other things that are also important to know. And the first thing you need to know is something about God. Because God is the one who comes up with the idea of family. We're going to hit that a little bit later on. But, but keep that in mind. It's God's idea. Like, we didn't come up with procreation, right? Like God came up with the whole event. It's his idea. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill. So it's God's idea. What is he after? And we call that God's ideal. When it comes to what is God after, we're saying that God is an idealist. Now, that's not to suggest that God is absent from real life. Like, like he does understand what brokenness is and how it impacts our lives. He does know what reality is. In fact, nobody knows what reality is more than God. But at the same time, God is an idealist. In other words, he puts forward an ideal, something for us to chase after, something that if we were to embrace it, if we were to pursue it, would radically alter the course of our lives, but also the experience of life itself. God wants us to experience fullness of relationship, fullness of depth, fullness, right? Abundance. Those are the words that the Bible uses to describe the life God wants for us. Ironically, when Jesus comes on the scene and he comes on the scene to describe who God is, some of the first words out of Jesus' mouth is, I came that they might have life. Life is what God is after. That's God's ideal. And when it comes to God's ideal about parenting, he recorded it for us in the garden. That's why that narrative is so important for us. You have this exposure that we have to Adam and Eve. And he puts Adam and Eve in the garden and he says, now I want you, I want you to like cultivate. And that's a bigger idea than just turn the dirt over in the garden. I want you, I want you to produce in every field that I've given you. I want you to be scientists. I want you to be artists. I want you to fill the earth and subdue it with my glory, which includes the idea of a parent-child relationship. And so they set to work. They go after that. Now, what's interesting about God's ideal is we don't always reach God's ideal. It wasn't long after that story was written for us that we get into a world known as the world of patriarchy. It's a world that's very tribal, and it's a world that still is valid, or it's essentially in practice to this day, even in the Middle East. And so this world of patriarchy allows for certain definitions of family and for certain things to happen in family that don't happen in your family. Probably. One of those things that patriarchy allowed for was polygamy. It was very tribal. 
And you can still see it to this day and it's practiced all throughout the Old Testament and even a little bit into the New Testament among the Jews. And this idea was, a, was, was not God's ideal. And yet, and this is important, God allowed for it. Why? Because he also is a realist. He understands that we make bad decisions. I want you to understand something. In those bad decisions, God is merciful. He was merciful to those who practiced polygamy, even though it was not God's ideal. Even though he said, one man, one woman, and people did more than that, God's still blessed. And that shouldn't throw us theologically. When you bring your baby home from the hospital, I guarantee you do not reach all of God's ideals. And it is a good thing to understand theologically that in the moment, he will be merciful to you. We may not reach God's ideal, but, but, and don't lose this, we pursue it. We pursue it. If we lose sight of it, we go backwards. So we're supposed to both live in a world of reality and recognize and receive God's mercy and at the same time pursue God's ideal. We move from patriarchy in the Old Testament to the New Testament Roman era, where we get a new definition of household. This idea of household, as we describe it, which we borrow a lot from, actually comes from Roman ideology. But the idea of a household in Rome in the New Testament is actually different than the idea that you probably grew up with. It's got similarities. We even borrow some of the language, but it's not the whole. And you know that because when Paul talks about how to do family and parenting, he includes more than just the relationship between child and parent. In the same lists, he's talking about the whole Roman household. And so he says, children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. Do you know why? Because that was the Roman order. That was the Roman household. So we move from patriarchy, which had polygamy, to a Roman household, and you see this. You see God's people and God's prophets actually saying, in or within the culture you've been planted in, here is how to love one another best, even though it is not God's ideal. And isn't it true that it's exactly what your experience has been and my experience has been? We have people telling us how to live to the best of our potential within the culture that we live in. And we tend to think our culture is the best, but what I want to do and what the Proverbs are taking us toward, and that's why it's so important you understand this, what I want to do is present God's ideal, and what you want to do is live in God's ideal. What we want to pursue is God's ideal, recognizing we're not there, but we want to be. And that's where we're going to get our definitions, and that's how we're going to get where we need to go. Now, if we were to take both patriarchy and the Roman household model, we're going to put them and, and say, what's the one thing? What's the one thing that, that emerges out of both of those models that actually reaches God's ideal that the Proverbs talk about for your life and for mine today? Here's what I think it actually is. And there's probably several things, but this is the one I want to pick out. It's order. When it comes to those models, what God will continually lift out is that there must be in our homes, in our lives, in our churches, and in our societies some sense of order. There's got to be order. Why has there got to be order? Because order suggests authority is real. It's in the universe. It's part of God's functioning law. That there is authority in the universe. There is a God. And heaven is a, God, is a place of order. Heaven in the future is going to be a place of order. And if there's a God who has authority over us, he wants order to be a part of our experience, a part of our journey. He wants it to be a part of our lives. And so wherever you're looking for family, whatever kind of family you find yourself in, whether it's a Roman ideal or the tribal idea, in both places, what you will see emerge oftentimes is this principle of order. 
The question is, we, are we pursuing order? So what can we learn from the Proverbs in regards to this idea? Well, Proverbs presents a framework for us, and it really does so on two fronts, the parenting front and then a secondary front that I'll reveal in just a minute. But interestingly enough, the Proverbs begin right where Genesis begins. It begins with two parents. Listen to this. It says, listen to my son. This is Proverbs chapter one. Like, this is an important thing. Proverbs begin with parent-child relationships. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction. And don't reject your mother's teaching. Here's why this is important. Because sameness, sexual sameness, is not God's ideal in parent-child relationships. Now, I get that some of us came from single-parent homes. I want you to know God's mercy is sufficient. His grace is on display in that experience. I also want you to know at the same time, this is why it's so important, right? That's not God's ideal. God's ideal is a man and a woman. Why? Why is that God's ideal? Why is that so important? Well, it's interesting. Dads are known, if you study this, you'll find this information out there. Dads are known for risk-taking, problem-solving. Moms are known for nurturing. That's what they're known for. Dads, you're known for something. There's something unique about you you bring to the relationship with your children that you need to have. And moms, there's something unique about you that you bring to the relationship. Your sensitivity and your nurturing ability is something that they need. It's not the only thing that they need. But it's something that they need. Dad, they need your risk-taking ability. They need your view of life. They need to know how life works. They need to know that if they don't work, they won't eat. Guys are uniquely equipped to say that seemingly without a conscience or any sensitivity at all. They just think that's the way it is. And kids need to hear that bluntness. And then moms are like, well, we'll be there for you, honey. And dad's like, no, you're going to make a sissy out of them. I don't know, right? There's, there's that interplay that takes place in a home. And here's the deal. Our kids need both of those elements in their life to be successful. One isn't more important than the other, but sameness is definitely not what God's ideal is. So he says, listen to my son, my son, to your fathers and to the instruction of your mother's teaching. The reality is, guys, your kids know this already. My son's in college, and so he's, he's homesick. He won't admit to it, but we've told him that's what he is. It's like, you've been diagnosed, son's. And so he calls us frequently. What he doesn't know, what he doesn't know is that when he calls us, we're often in the room together. But he'll call mom. And he'll say, mom, let me tell you about my day. He very rarely ever calls me to tell me about his day. But then he'll get off the phone with mom, not knowing we're in the same room. And then he'll call me. Say, dad, what do I do about this? He's looking for direction. I'm not the least bit offended when he seeks nurturing from my wife. And my wife is not the least bit offended when he seeks direction from me. Because we're in it together. By the way, he does know that now. I've preached on this before. Last Sunday, he was watching. He now knows that we do that to him. <clears throat> Cat is out of the bag. Your kids understand this. They understand the differences. In fact, comedians understand this. Think about how dads give directions differently than moms do. 
And I kind of joke about this, but it's just a little bit real, right? I'll ask my wife for directions and she'll tell me to head towards the sunset, turn left at the pond, and then another right next to the kids who are selling lemonade. And I'm like, I just need road names. Just tell me the names of the signs. That's all I need. We think differently. We think about directions differently. We think about hurt differently. When my kids fall down, they're growing up, they fall down, they hurt themselves. There's something in me as they come crying that lasts just a little bit. Because I realize this is going to make them tough. Like this is going to do something good. And it's not that I don't care. It's just that I care differently for them. My wife looks at that same experience and says, how can I help? What do you need? Do you need a Band-Aid? And I'm like, no, he doesn't need a Band-Aid. I don't see any blood yet. We see blood. We can talk Band-Aids. They need both. We think about hurt differently. We think, we think about advice differently. I remember giving my son some advice. He got a bike with some disc brakes on it. And I said, son, this is an amazing experience. Uh, you're getting a, a fantastic bike. You're going to love it. Uh, these disc brakes are going to you know, change your life. That's the way it feels when you get a new, a new gizmo, something like that. And I said, but be careful. They can also cut your hand off. He didn't think dad knew anything. So I remember getting into the car and backing out of the driveway and hearing a scream that was so ungodly, no father should ever have to hear it. And there's my son turned away from his bike. His bike is upside down. He'd been working on his disc brakes. The back tire is spinning at like a thousand RPMs. So I know he's been doing stuff and monkeying on it and trying to get it to go fast. And he's sitting there holding a stump of a finger. Like there's blood spurting out. This is an R-rated message. I'm sorry about that. And he's just screaming at the top of his lungs. And in that moment, something came to my mind that would never have crossed the horizon of my wife's mind. In that moment, I thought to myself, I should tell him I told him so. Now, I didn't do that because I love my son. But every guy knows what I'm talking about. Because we give advice differently for a different purpose than our wives give advice. In that moment, my wife had the right touch. And I got in the car and I had understanding because, you know, my wife influences me. And that's good. We need each other. So when it comes to this verse, I don't want to underestimate its significance. Fathers, you've got a role. Mothers, you've got a role. But it's bigger than that. Look at this. Proverbs 17, 6. Grandchildren are the crown of the elderly. The fact of the matter is that when we view family, it's bigger than just our little family unit. That when it comes to God's ideal, I realize that grandparents are always there. Or that maybe we're estranged from them. But when it comes to pursuing it, what is God's ideal that the larger family unit is on display in the Proverbs and in the Scriptures as a whole? That there is something there for us. And if you can't find your actual grandparents, there are surrogate grandparents literally everywhere. Especially at church, right? Uh, but one of the most important things I ever did as a kid, I turned 16, 16 year olds listen up. I turned 16, I got my driver's license and my grandma, my grandma um, had the, uh, the courage to ask me to invite me to ferry her from Orland, California up to Portland, like a seven, eight hour drive. And, and so I got an old Oldsmobile, which is like a big old boat, you know, and we we're just kind of floating up the freeway and uh, bench seats, all the whole nine, and we're floating up the freeway, and the entire time, Grandma's talking, whole time. And it was some of the most profound engagement and interaction I ever had with Grandma. 
She lived to 103 before she passed away, but I will never forget that drive to Oregon. She told me about God's faithfulness, about her hardships, and I learned valuable, valuable lessons. Things that my parents couldn't give me, grandma downloaded into my life. Are you with me? And if you don't have that grandma, you might have another person in your life. Pastor Chris came to me in the Palmer campus. That's where my wife and our family attend. And, and Pastor Chris came to me in the foyer someday. And I don't know what precipitated this or why this happened. But the reality is he came to me. And I don't know if he saw something or thought of something. But he said, Jonathan, just right out of the blue in the foyer, Jonathan, you've got to make memories with your kids. You've got to make memories and it resonated with me. I wanted to make memories. He didn't have to convince me that was the truth, but it was in that moment something activated, and I realized this is the time for this to happen. This is the moment to activate the plan Shannon and I already had, but we didn't know if it was the right time, and when he said that, we knew now is the time. We need those voices in our life. It changed the trajectory of our family. It reordered our finances. And we traveled together as a family during COVID and beyond. And now I'm at that place of going, I'm launching kids out of my home. But there was a time. There was a window. There was an opportunity where we needed to make memories as a family. And then once the window was gone, it's gone forever. And we used the window. I've got three kids still in my home. I still need to make memories that's what we're after. Grandchildren are the crown of the elderly and the pride of children is their fathers. But here's what the Proverbs speak to above all else. And it's really the center of this message. It's this, discipline matters. It's the subject we don't want to talk about, but we all know is important to talk about. When it comes to how to raise kids, discipline has to be in the home because order has to be in the home. We have to have the discussion of discipline. In fact, I don't have time to go into every proverb about child-parent relationships, but I could say at least half, if not two-thirds of the proverbs are about discipline. Like if you understand this principle, you understand what the proverbs have to say because God is after order in the home, and you can't get there without the idea of discipline. It's in the majority of the proverbs, and listen to this. I love how Proverbs 23 brings it to our, 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 our minds. Don't withhold discipline from a youth. If you punish him with a rod, he will not die. This is my favorite verse in the Proverbs. My kids know it well. He's not going to die. Like some of you dads need to look at your wives at that moment and you say, honey, he's not going to die. Because they need you, dads, not to be passive. Because discipline has to be a part of your home. You punish him with a rod, he will not die. Punish him with a rod and you will rescue his life from Sheol. Sheol is the grave. It's death. You'll rescue his life. Discipline has to be a part of the equation if we're truly going to be loving parents. See, we hear certain words filtered through our cultural context and they become tainted and stained. Literally, a biblical term gets cycled through counseling structures and psychology. People who don't know God, it gets redefined and then we can't even use the term in our own language. We don't even know what our Bible says anymore. Be very, very careful. We are the guardians of words as Christians. We should know what they mean, and we should practice what they mean in our lives. Otherwise, how will we be a light on the hill? And the word punish is being used here specifically. In the counseling world, you don't ever get to use this term. I want to use it. Punish, 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 punish. We even watch shows called Cry Man. 
See the hypocrisy? Punishment is part of life because punishment tells us that there's consequences in life. These are tracks to run on. But, but listen, listen, what we don't want to do is take this where we're not meant to go. This, this design, this verse actually tells us how to punish in a loving sort of way. It actually tells us why we punish or how we punish in a loving manner. Punishment has the idea of household rules. And all of us believe in household rules. You have them, whether you've stated them, whether you wrote them on the fridge for your kids in front of your dinner table or not, there are household rules. And those household rules, probably if they're like on the wall, are all super positive and nice. But then there are the other household rules, the other household rules for when we step out of the nice household list. And they may be unspoken and you're not proud to put them up, but they're real, aren't they? And fact is, some of them were bad rules, and you've gotten rid of them, and some of them you've found are effective for this current time of your life. Rules can shift like that. They can change. But we all have rules because we're all chasing order. And if I was to ask teenagers, if I was to ask your teenager how the rules in your parents' household going or if I was to ask, are they fair, most teenagers, simply by virtue of the fact that they're teenagers, would say they're not fair. If you're an older kid, you're certain they're not fair. Because you're certain the younger kids get away with literally anything they want to. That you would never have gotten away with. It's just the way it is. And the reason we often think rules aren't fair and punishment is unfair is because we think this is us. This isn't God. This isn't the Bible. This is us. We think that the rules exist for those people who are in power over us. We think that the rules always benefit, benefit those with the most power. And in fact, sometimes they do. But when it comes to this verse and the Christian ideal, God's ideal, that is not the purpose of rules or punishment. God doesn't need to be benefited from our good behavior. He's God. So why would he ever create rules? If he doesn't need to be benefited by our behavior, why would he give us rules, tracks to run on? Well, it's important because this goes to God's motive. The reason he gives us a to-do and not-to-do rule is singular, because he loves us. This is at the core of our theology about God. To put it in question form, it looks something like this. Do you believe that God is a moral law giver or a moral law gifter? See, this is at the core of the rule. Dads in your home, if the goal of your rule is to keep the quiet and it's all about you, your kids will suffer. And your punishment probably is unfair. But if your goal is to give them tracks to run on so that their relationships can flourish, so they can experience real life, so they can be promoted, if your goal is to keep them out of Sheol, if your goal is to, is to, is to help them on the straight and narrow so they can flourish, so their life can become bigger rather than smaller, then your goal, your rule, is going to be loving. And your kids will know it. They'll know the difference. We need to make sure when it comes to the parent-child relationships that the motive for our rules is to gift them something. See, God isn't just saying, this is how it must be, and if you break my rule, I'm at you. I'm at your throat. What he's actually saying is, I've set up certain things in place so that you can tap into them and flourish. 
And we should have that same culture and constant inside of our home. In fact, listen to this. This is Proverbs 24. Eat honey, my son. This is the most pure substance in Israel at the time. Eat honey, my son, for it is good. And the honeycomb is sweet to your palate. Realize that wisdom is the same for you. If you find it, you will have a future and your hope will never fade. In other words, the discipline of wisdom has a product. It's like honey. My words are good. Pay attention to my discipline because they're meant to help you flourish. They're meant to promote. They're meant to expand your life instead of shrink your life. In a sense, the Proverbs come at it like this. What do you want? Do you want discipline and punishment in your life? Or do you want to die? That's because a man wrote Proverbs. <laughs> what is it? What do you want? Listen, we're out of order. We're so afraid of our kids. We no longer punishment. And, and as a result, they don't feel secure. And so they act like people who don't feel secure. And there's no order in our homes. Somebody's got to say, no, here's the one thing I know from Scripture. It is children that obey parents and not the reverse. Something's out of order. Something's out of whack. And we here, we cannot expect to experience the blessing of God in our life if we won't do what God's called us to do and bring order into the chaos. Punishment is a real part of our lives, but it's meant for a loving purpose. If we were to get an illustration from the Proverbs about this for real clarity, it would be the illustration of training. All of us have been to the gym. We all understand that discipline is required to, be, to benefit health. Like if we go to the gym and we actually do the deed, as painful as it is, as much as it hurts, it actually yields peace. It brings real fruit into our life. And that is really the illustration. In fact, listen to this. It says, start a youth. This is familiar to you, Proverbs 22, 6. Start a youth on his way, and when he grows old, he will not depart from it. Here's what that verse is actually saying. It was seen as a mark of abundance, as a sign of blessing from heaven, if you were allowed to grow old. If you weren't righteous, you were to expect a premature death. That's the Old Testament. It's one that's written in the law. So this verse is actually telling us something more than most people realize. It's actually saying, if you train a youth, if you bring discipline into your li their life early enough and they don't turn from it, which is the normal way it goes, not always, but it's a normal, and it's God's ideal, you will save his soul from death. If you train a child early, he will actually be able to, or she will actually be able to grow old in an imperfect world that is after him. Is that really your objective? If it's our objective, we can expect that under normal circumstances, this is the fruit that we can experience. This is God's ideal. But... There's God's ideal, and then there is the world in which we find ourselves. There's the world of heartache, where we start out with two parents and then somebody dies or a disease happens or poverty strikes or a child rebels and we didn't anticipate it, and all of a sudden we find ourselves in a place where we are far, far away from God's ideal. Probably the most painful experience that we can have when we're not able to reach God's ideal is when we have personal failure in our life. When we actually 
reach this period where we, we, we look at our kids and we just go, you know what, I've lost their trust. I've lied one too many times. I took a drink one too many times. I, I no longer can ever get back what I have lost. It's hopeless. Personal fail can be absolutely crippling in a relationship. I call these contrary winds. Cody and I and Sophie were out in Israel just a, you know, months and months ago now, this year as a matter of fact. And we were out on the Sea of Galilee, and one of the things that they teach on the Sea of Galilee is what is found in the Gospel of Mark, and it's that there's these contrary winds. They're rare, but they come. Usually the wind comes out of the west, and it sweeps the sailboat along. But every once in a while, a contrary wind will happen, and it'll disrupt your progress to the other side of the sea. And it can even slam you back up against the shore. It can take you backwards in life. Like It, it can be more than a struggle. It can be a death blow. It can feel that way. And ironically, as we were out there, a contrary wind, which is super rare, actually happened. We experienced it, and all of a sudden, the wind shifted and came out of the east, and there we were caught in a contrary wind. That is the reality that we all find ourselves in from time to time. Listen, it can be going great for 20 years, and then it is no longer going great. But here's what I'm convinced of. When it comes to parenting and child rearing and this whole experience, is that when things aren't great, and when we fail to reach God's ideal, in fact, let me put it this way, when things get really, really dark, God shines his light. It's just a principle I've discovered is true. In fact, the darker things get, the brighter God wants to shine his light. And do you know how we access that light? We access it through lives of faith and through lives of integrity. And I've seen this. I remember there was a moment in my family, in my home, where my dad, my dad was an itinerant preacher, but there weren't a lot of gigs happening out there. My mom was kind of supporting that with her job, and she lost her job. Essentially, they were both unemployed, and it was the 90s. There was a looming threat of war in the Middle East, and we had a recession that we were walking through. And I remember hearing my mom in tears on the phone to grandma, saying, I don't know if I can feed my kids. You can imagine having to tell your kids you can't go to school with a lunch tomorrow. I don't have any food to feed you. The shame that can be associated with that. Even though my parents wanted to reach God's ideal more than anything, clearly they were not able to provide for us in that moment. No fault of their own, life can be that way. But you know what I discovered? I discovered that not only do my parents love me, but over the course of the next year, as I saw God rescue my family, I discovered God loved us. And it's a lesson I will never forget. In fact, I wouldn't give it up for anything. Because in that moment, I discovered a family that said, let's pray. Not let's run, not let's isolate, let's pray. Let's invite God into our junk. And when that took place, I got to see the glory of God show up over and over, not once, not twice, but over and over and over again, I got to see God show up on behalf of our family. And I never forgot, and I know that it was those kinds of hardships, and it's often hardship that bring out integrity and bring out faithfulness. It's often in that place that God shines the brightest for your kid. You may have blown it like you don't believe. Listen, if in that moment, your integrity begins to shine through. And integrity is not something you do, it's something you are. When your integrity begins to 
go to bat for you, do not underestimate the redemption that God can work as a result. In fact, listen to this proverb. If you forget everything else, listen to this proverb about integrity. A righteous person acts with integrity. And then look at this. His children who come after him will be. It's a principle, not a promise, but it's something. It's the way it normally operates. He didn't promise the riches. He didn't say your life would be ideal. He didn't say, I expect that you will do it all correctly. So take a load off because you're not doing it all correctly. Guarantee it. But when you have your integrity, your kids will be happy. Isn't that amazing? We don't have a huge book signing after this. I haven't written a book on how to parent your child. We're all starting in the same point. We don't know what we're doing. I've often told my kids what you've heard before, that old saying, hey guys, this is my first time too. But when you have your integrity, your kids will be happy. That's what we're going to chase. And it is God's ideal. He's in it with you. But it leads me to this conclusion. Families are meant to play offense. When it comes to society and how to influence society, get this, God gave us three primary ways to do it. And don't ever forget them. There's government. God's idea is government. And if we work against government, we might find ourselves working against God. God's idea was the church. And if we find ourselves working against the church, we might find ourselves doing battle with God. And it was God's idea to create family. And if we redefine family and find ourselves growing cynical and we work against family, we might actually find ourselves working against God. But all three of those are designed with one purpose, to radically alter the course of society by bringing health to it. They're offensive measures. They're ingredients that God put into society to fix things and to make it better. All three are imperfect. God has an ideal for all three, and we rarely meet the ideal. But don't you ever let go of God's ideal or something dark and sinister will replace it. Question is, are we pursuing God's ideal, his definition of family. Families are meant to play offense. The original family was told some very specific things. Adam, Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. I want you to know I've sanctioned this. I want you to know to enjoy it. I want you to know I've blessed it. I want you to know when you partake, I'm in it with you all the way. Be fruitful. Multiply, fill, cultivate, train, discipline, make disciples. Go for it. If you want to know God's will, he just declared his will. This is the normal way things operate in this world. This is God's ideal, which leads me to this idea. Families on mission make it. God has a mission we're families, and it's offensive, not defensive. The ultimate illustration of this is the story of Noah. 
Here's Noah and he raises a bunch of righteous kids and he does so publicly. He says, as he records things, that he raised righteous kids by sacrificing and at the same time by God leveraging him with a very specific mission. He sacrificed on behalf of his kids. He worshiped God. He was a God worshiper. God calls him a righteous man and then gives him and his family a mission. What was the mission? I want you to build me an ark. Where? Out in the forest where nobody can see it. No. I want you to go hide. No. I want you to build me an ark. I want you to live on mission. Where? Where everybody can see it. Families are offensive. And families on mission make it. He raised righteous kids in the most wicked and perverse generation the world has ever known. You thought it was this generation. It's not. It was his. And he did it. And you can do it too. It's the normal way things operate when God is with you. People will ask me oftentimes, like, was it, was it worth it 18 years? Is it worth it? I mean, I remember being there, right, and going, wow, God, you gave us a kid and all the excitement and all the hope and, and all the fears that came with it. Is it worth it? All the trouble. Guys, there's a lot of trouble. I mean, cutting off a finger, that's just, that's just a little thing, isn't it? Raising kids is hard. Is it worth it? It's absolutely worth it. It's really living. Are you with me? It's really living. It's doing the thing God called us to do. So it's living. Who are we? Somehow turn back time and say, oh, no, no, you don't have a good idea, God. We got a better one. I need to protect my body. I like it. I don't want to ruin it with him. Who are we to know what is good for us? Here's what I can say after 18 years, after graduating one kid, I got three more to go. Pray for me. Here's what I can say. It is totally worth it. It's the most rewarding and significant adventure you'll ever be put on. If you have the opportunity, say yes. I'm grateful. Well, we're about to step into a time of communion. Really, there is no communion with you if we are not willing to obey. You've given us some clear instructions about what life is supposed to be like and look like. Help us to not only believe you, but then to have the courage to carry that out so that we can be the light you intended us to be and experience the fullness you experienced us to fulfill. God, we pray that now in Jesus' name. To all God's people said, amen.